<laughs> Let's all stand, shall we, as our campuses join us via the video signal. Let's recite together the Apostles' Creed. This is our statement of faith. This is who we are, what we believe at Celebration Church. We believe in God, the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth. We believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who for us and for our salvation was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead, and on the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the fellowship of believers, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. Good to have you here. Welcome to our campuses in Stevens Point and Appleton. Good morning to all of you. Glad that you've joined to worship with us here at uh, Celebration Church. Uh, so I went and saw the, uh, the Exodus movie. Anybody see this thing? <laughs> I'm glad you asked. How was it? Let me elaborate. It's a bit of a rant. It has nothing to do with anything, but indulge me for a moment. So I go see this movie, the Exodus movie. Ridley Scott, the director, and all the hoity-toities. Who's Moses? What's his name? Baal, right? Christian Baal, yeah. So anyway, I come out of this movie, and I'm just totally frustrated. It's all get out. I mean, whenever Hollywood does a movie about anything based on a story or a book, they go out of their way to be as accurate as they possibly can so that they will have the fan base support for the movie, right? When they did Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, they went through extraordinary efforts to bring that thing to life, to be as accurate and true to the original story as humanly possible. When they did Batman, they wanted to make sure that all of Batology would be happy with their version of Batville, okay? And the motivations and everything they had to, you know, let people know who the next Batman was to see how the fan base would accept the Bat guy and who's going to be the next Bat and all that. Just, you know, when they do Star Trek, they really go out of the way to whatever timeline there, and there's this huge timeline, all you, all you Trekkies out there, huge timeline of everything that's been ever shown in a Star Trek movie. And whatever point they go into, it has to be consistent with the timeline. And it would refer to events before that timeline or point to events that we know are coming later in the timeline. I mean, they go through, it's because the Trekkies will eat them alive. If they're not dead right on with these stories and these accounts and these books and these comic books and whatever, but when it comes to the Bible, they just make it up. So I come out of this movie, I'm just beside myself, and I'm saying to my wife, what's the matter with these people? And she said, well, Mark, they don't believe in the Bible. Well, nobody believes in hobbits. <laughs> Who believes in a hobbit? They don't believe in hobbits. They don't believe in Batman. There's no Batman. There's no Star Trek, at least not yet. What does their belief system have to do with anything? It's absurd. And then these same idiots wonder why more people don't go see their movies. Why don't Christians want to go see our Bible movies? Because it's not even close. Did you see Noah? Gigantic rock people. 
building the ark. <laughs> Did you read the story? So I go to see this great movie. You think if anyone, you know, Cecil B. DeMille, at least he had a clue. He wanted to use the greatest technology of the day to bring to life these incredible. I mean, if you're a movie producer, you, you want to bring to life a what is more dramatic than the story of the Jews coming out of Egypt? Why wouldn't you make that come to so so he's gonna do this movie? And uh, so the reason Moses has this vision of God is because a big rock falls on his head. And the rock hits and he falls into the mud and just his face is up, he's up to it. And then a little boy is God. This is the version of God, a little boy, a creepy little boy. <laughs> you know, I, felt, I was expecting him to turn in a minute and go, I see dead people. You know, they're like, this is a creepy little boy. And, you know, really, this is your version of God? I mean, at least, you know, Darth Vader had James Earl Jones, you know, with a cool voice. Luke. <laughs> but not creepy kid. So creepy kid tells him he needs to go back and get the people out of Egypt. So he goes back, and now Moses becomes a terrorist. He's a terrorist. And he's working with the children of Israel, showing them how to shoot arrows and how to, you know, and they went and they were terrorists and they were blowing things up. There's no dynamite, for heaven's sakes. There's no gunpowder. Did you read the story? Blowing, how are they blowing stuff up? It looked like a scene from Rambo. So then eventually God gets impatient because the terrorism is taking too long. You know, God, the eternal being. Yeah, he's on the clock. <laughs> Come on, I got places to go. Let's go with it. So he says, I, I got to intervene. So then he brings the plagues. Now, their version of the plagues, very bizarre. It starts out with gigantic alligators. <laughs> so the gigantic alligators are upstream, and they're chewing on people. And they're eating, and then they turn on each other. They're all eating it. It's so fake even. And apparently so many people are chopped up that the Nile turns red with blood. Now, have you any idea how many people you would have to chew <laughs> to turn the Nile River to blood? But that's how it turned to blood. Alligator. All I'm thinking is throwing that creepy kid. Let him chew him up. Just, ugh, just. So, so because of so much blood and all the fish are dying, the frogs can't breathe. So the frogs jump out of the blood. That's where you got the frogs from. And then the frogs died, and then, you know, there's flies that come out of their skin. And just, and the whole thing was so stupid. And then you get to the death angel. Now, come on. You're a Hollywood director. This is God Almighty sending the death angel to take the lives of the firstborn of everyone, all the Egyptians. Even Cecil beat a mill. That looked cool when he did his. You know what the effect here was? A shadow. Just a shadow went over their faces. Like some guy's holding a big cardboard box in front of the light going. All right, cut. Brilliant. That was great. 
What? And apparently this movie costs a fortune. Apparently box holders are very expensive. This is your version of the death angel. And then when it comes to the parting of the earth, the parting of the earth, the sea doesn't part. Like the Bible says, heaven, why would we tell the story? It's just God lowered the water. So they're kind of slashing through the water to get to the other side. It's like, uh, that's all I got to say. You know, I, I don't, and then they wonder, you know, they're stunned. Hollywood is stunned because Mel Gibbs, I was say Mel Brooks. <laughs> Mel, <laughs> different Mel. <laughs> I like them both. But uh, Mel Gibson made a fortune off of the Passion of the Christ. It made, he made money like a drunken monkey. I mean, this money came in like crazy. It was hugely successful. And that's why they do these Bible movies, trying to, you know, he was successful. How come we can't be successful? But they're never successful because at least Gibson stayed true to the story. He was extremely accurate. Even had him speaking Aramaic. Nobody speaks Aramaic today. There's a couple of tribes somewhere. It was like a dying language. But that's what Jesus said. So they don't even have Jesus speaking English. They kept it as pure and as true. And the movie was incredibly successful because they just told the story. Why they just can't tell the story? I don't care what they believe. Why do they care what they believe? It's irrelevant. Don't be such idiots. And here's the sad thing. They're doing another one. The King David. They're doing, you know, David, the great mighty warrior who killed Goliath and the great king of Israel. Ridley Scott, the same moron who did this movie, is doing that movie. God only knows what they're going to do with that. David will probably be a gay cabaret dancer from New York City, you know. <laughs> Why not? And he probably gets a fight in an alley with a big fat bully, and that'll be the story of Goliath. <laughs> Idiots. All right, I'm done renting. I'm good. Okay, now let's be spiritual. I want <laughs> yes, oh yeah, please. Feed my ego. <laughs> okay, I apologize. Moving on. I want to read to you from the Bible about the aforementioned David, the king of Israel. This is in 2 Samuel, the 11th chapter. It says, in the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. And they destroyed the Ammonites, and then they besieged the city of Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. At this point, uh, again, I wish, I don't know how much they're going to screw up this movie, but I would love it if someone would actually do the life of David accurately. He was one of the greatest military figures in the history of mankind. This guy was incredible. You read the Bible about how this guy would fight. He was unstoppable. Just by himself, he was unstoppable. And his merry band of men were incredibly unstoppable. I mean, it's stunning to read. It's one of the, it's, you know, all you teenage boys, I know parts of the Bible are so boring. You want to read a good part? Read that part. It's really cool. Because they're cutting up people and these guys were just unbelievable warriors. Well, he's so successful. At this point, uh, he doesn't even need to go to war. He just sends his guys out. I mean, <laughs> it's a slam dunk. Everywhere he goes, he succeeds. His guys have learned from him. So they go out and they beat the uh, Ammonites. Now they besiege the city. David's just chilling back in Jerusalem. It says the next verse, now one evening David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. So he's just at night. He's walking around up there. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing, which by the way, ladies, curtains. 
And uh, apparently she didn't have that advanced technology. And uh, he looks down and he sees that she's gorgeous. This woman was very beautiful. I mean, she was like, Hochi, mama, look at this. And David sent someone to find out about her. And the man said, well, this is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. Now, we're in our final of our series, to the relief of many, I'm sure, <laughs> of my series this December called Ho, 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 Hoes of the Bible. Now, it's a play off the word ho, obviously. And a ho, H-O-E, is a contemporary term uh, that is used to speak to someone who's, you know, an immoral person. It can be male or female, usually applied to women. She's a ho, you know. Uh, and we, it, we've been talking about this because the story of Christmas is really a story about redemption and how Jesus came for the reason to redeem people, to save people, to give value to people whom everybody else wouldn't even consider had value. The people of Jesus' day were stunned that he would spend time with the prostitutes and the drunkards and these, you know, traitors to their country, these tax collectors, but yet he would do it on purpose and he would take these people and he would redeem and save and he would tell them, look, I came to seek and to save the lost and how he gave meaning to lives that no one else would think was worthy of consideration at all. And in fact, when you read the genealogy, and we're going to end with that, it's just a little short section. It's the beginning of the Christmas story in Matthew, the very first chapter. Starts out with the genealogy, and in this genealogy, he mentions, I said earlier, for early service, four, uh, three women. There's actually four women mentioned, but of the four, three of them were in fact hoes, as we would call them today. The only women that are mentioned were women that were remarkable for the immoral things that they had done. Uh, now, uh, many of the things that they had done uh, were in context. They were content, uh, contextual when you look at their lives and you start, to fe- you start to understand why they did what they did. And, and always remember, don't judge people harshly. Now, people today say, you're not supposed to judge. If you just say right and wrong, they say you're judging. That's not judging. They're, they don't know what the word means. But, you know, it's okay to acknowledge what is right and what is wrong. That's not judging. But to get harsh and condemning towards people, that's the kind of judging we're not supposed to do. And don't judge people harshly that you see do bad things because you don't know the context of what happened and why they did. Now, it never justifies. You still got to hang on to what's right and wrong. In our culture today, there is no right and wrong because there's always context. It's okay, he did this because that guy did that and this guy shot that guy because of this and there's there's always context and at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what you do. No, 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 it matters what you do. There is right and wrong, but even still, we need to be aware that there is context. Someone steals something, someone steals food, we think that's a very bad thing. If you find out that the guy hasn't eaten in three or four days and has children that he's trying to get, you know, that changes the context. Oh, okay. You know, you don't know. And even when people do immoral things, you don't know the context of what happened. We as pastors, and a lot of times people will say, well, you know, so-and-so committed adultery, somebody cheated on somebody, and everybody looks down on that person, but you don't know the context. We as pastors often get into the weeds with these people, and we find out the context, and sometimes there's very strong context. Should the guy have cheated on his wife? Of course he should not have. But then he's married to a woman who would never let him touch her. It's a whole different ball game. You know, when you're living with the wicked witch of the West and someone else comes along and is real nice to you, all of a sudden, oh, there's context. Does it make it right? No, but I often find that person who pushed that 
as guilty, in my book, almost more guilty because they caused the problem in the first place. Men who do the same thing to their wives, totally ignore them, totally disrespect them, have nothing to do with them. And then she winds up having an affair with someone else. You know, should she have done that? No. Who do I blame? The husband. Because he never paid attention to her. There's context. Don't think you're so hoity-toity that you can just look at other people and say, well, I shouldn't have done that. You know, there's a reason why people do it. And if anything, you should be careful and pray that you never fall into the same situation. Because I truly believe, given the right circumstances, any of us are capable of anything. If you think, I would never do that, this would never happen to me, blah, 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 you're delusional. That's why we're supposed to pray, as we prayed, keep us from temptation. Father, keep us so we don't fall into temptation. Deliver us from evil. Why? Jesus often told his disciples, pray that you don't fall into temptation. Why? Because given the right circumstances, anybody is capable of anything. And that's why you should pray, God, keep me from those kind of circumstances so I don't do it. You should never think, oh, I'm so much better than everybody else. I wouldn't have never done that. No, that person felt. You should see, when you see something like that, it should put, strike fear into your heart. Always does to me. Whenever I see or hear someone do something bad, it always puts fear in my heart. And I, and I, I get in trying to help those people and I pray, God, keep me from circumstances like that so I don't have to face those kinds of things. There is context. There's reasons. Even of some of the people we just mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus, one of the women was Tamar. We didn't even talk about her in this series. She was the first hoe, if you will, of our three hoes. Uh, we never even got to her. But there was context for what she did. If you read, it's kind of creepy, but it's still, there was a reason she did what she did. And the guilt really was on the, the you know, father-in-law for uh, not treating her the way she should have. So it was context there. Rahab was raised in a pagan culture. Maybe it's the only way she could make money. You don't know why she was a prostitute. There was context. A lot of these have real consequences and real context to why they do what they do. Be careful not to be mean or harsh and judge harshly others because, but for the grace of God, there go you. I've, I know of three people personally that I've talked to who've committed murder uh, and they were out. And the reason they're out is because of the overwhelming context. You know, they'll tell you, yeah, I shot him, you know. And well, you should be, and of course, you know, there's people who yell and scream, they should be in jail, and the family of the person that he murdered, oh, should be in Yeah, but you find out the guy beat her senseless constantly, and her only desperate act was to take a gun. She didn't even know what she was doing and put lead into him. I'm pretty sure I would do the same thing. I tried to be more creative, maybe C4. You know, like Moses had. <laughs> Apparently C4 goes way back. But there's context. There's reasons why people do what they do. Don't be too harsh. Then you've got the people who do things and there's no context. They're just doing really bad things. In this story, we now have such a man. Now, as I tell you the story, I want you to keep in mind. We won't read it. I'll just tell it to you because it'll take too long. Keep in mind who this is. This is David. This is the guy as a, as a teenager who he had courage when nobody else would have courage and he took on Goliath and killed him and brought a great victory to his nation. He eventually becomes king. He celebrated greatly. The women would sing songs about him and dance and they loved him like you cannot imagine. He was the one who brought the nation together. When you read the Old Testament, 
Uh, it's a little confusing at times because it talks about Israel and then it talks about Judah. Judah and Israel, Israel and Judah. What is that? Judah is the one tribe, but it was a very big tribe and they were very successful and they didn't get along with the other tribe. It's kind of like the North and the South uh, during the Civil War in our days. Uh, the is Israel were the tribes of the North. Uh, Judah was the big tribe of the South, never really got along. They did under David's rule. He brought them together, uh, also under Solomon, the next king, and then it all fell apart again after that. Uh, but, uh, you know, he is the successful one who brings, brings it all together. He's the great king, greatly celebrated, has all the money, all the wealth, all the power anybody could imagine and dream of. He's got for himself at this point, if I've got the number right, four wives. Apparently one was not stressful enough. He added three more. <laughs> so he's got four. And these are all drop-dead gorgeous women. I mean, these kings, these guys, they got the cream of the crop. Sometimes they were commanded to go find the most gorgeous woman you could find. And they would scour the end of man, here's one. Whoa, look at her. She's the next one. I mean, it was a big deal. Now, this guy, he has everything he could ever... And in addition to that, he also had concubines. We don't read much about that, hear much about that, which is a wife, but not a wife. You fill in the blanks. All right. He's got everything any man could ever dream of. He's walking along and he sees Bathsheba. Whoa, look at her. And he quick goes out to find out who is this. He finds out who she is. And of course, now the context for her is her husband is not there because he's at war. Remember, they sent the army out to go take on the Ammonites and to take siege of the city. He's risking his life She's by herself. He's hitting on her. Now, he comes in, she, he meets her, overwhelms her, seduces her, gets her pregnant. Of course, a lot of people could point at her, what a bad girl. But man, I'm telling you, this is all on David. You know, in our country, we very much look down on people who have disproportionate power over others. That's why we very much disapprove of a teacher who takes advantage of her or his students. Why? Well, it's consensual. It's not consensual. You have so much power. Even uh, uh, employers who take advantage of employees, it's very disproportional. It's not right. It's one of the big reasons that Bill Clinton got in so much trouble. You know, well, it was a consensual act with, uh, what's her face? Uh, but, the, but the deal was, whatever her name was, was it? Monica, Monica, God bless her, Monica. Uh, so, uh, and then everybody, oh, she's a hoe, she's a hoe. Yeah, but come on, there's no consensual thing. He has disproportionate power over this little intern. What he did was awful, and that's why everybody looks so harsh about it. It wasn't just consensual. When you have that, such a disproportionate amount of power, well, even that pales in comparison to the power David has. These kings ruled supremely. He's a good-looking guy, the warrior. He's a man's man. He's the hottest hottie there is in Hotville. And now he turns all of his attentions to her, who has a husband who's out to war. This is on him. Well, she contacts him later and says, I'm, I'm pregnant. Well, he freaks, because someone's going to figure this out. There's no husband. They're going to start connecting the dots. So he quick says, send Uriah back. So sends Uriah back. And he says, hey, Uriah, how's it doing? And he's probably wondering, why are you talking to me? I'm a nothing. He's just a, he's just a little peon in this battle. How's it going in the battle? And he tells him, and he says, all right, well, good to, say, it's good to have you here. Well, you know, why don't you go home and you know, rest a little bit before you go back? Of course, he wants him to go back and spend time with his wife. So there'd be a plausible timeline for why she's now pregnant. Well, he finds out the next day he doesn't go home. 
He sleeps in a, you know, in the, wherever he sleeps. And, uh, and he says, well, why don't you go home? He says, well, I, I can't do that. He says, while my brothers are out there suffering in tents and on the battle, that I would enjoy the comforts of my home, I would never do such a thing. This man has such character. I'd have gone home. <laughs> but uh, not him. I'd have gone home before I went to see the king. I'll be honest with you right now. So anyway, so David, oh, come on. So he brings him to dinner, and the Bible says he gets him just rip-snorting drunk. The guy's just plastered. And the guy's like, ah, and he finds, all right, Uriah, good to see you. It was a great time. Glad we hung out. Go on home. So he sends him home. Well, the next day he finds out that he, like, sleeps on the porch. He still doesn't go in. Well, he's freaking out. What am I going to do? So they send him back to the front lines. Then David, in his desperation, tells the commander, I want you to find the worst part of the city, the most defended part of the city that you would normally not attack. There were places you would attack and other places you wouldn't. These were very smart men when it came to the art of war. This was so well. I want you to go to the worst part, and I want you to send Uriah and a bunch of guys there and then pull back and abandon them. And not only did Uriah die, the Bible says several of the men died. So David is guilty of the deaths of several men. He murders Uriah. Now we have the grieving widow. The king takes in the grieving widow. What a nice guy. And he marries Uriah, his wife, this Bathsheba. Oh, what a lovely man. Wife number five. And he goes on like nothing happened. Well, God, obviously, at this point, is really horked. Very angry at what David did. And he sends a prophet to confront him for the sin that he did. And when the prophet confronted him, David's response was different than the king before him. The king before him was Saul. Saul also disobeyed God, but not nearly as bad as David. Not nearly as bad as David. But when the prophet con uh, confronted Saul, Saul gave excuses. Hey, it's not my fault. Those people did it. I didn't do it. You know, there's a reason they did it. He says, and God got very angry, and that's why Saul lost his kingdom. And that's why David became king. But unlike Saul, when the prophet confronts him, he immediately turns and cries out to God for forgiveness. And the prophet says, the Lord has removed your sin. Even after all of that, I mean, this is awful. What he lust, lying, adultery, and murder. God forgave him. Then we go on, and now he has a son whose name is Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, wealth beyond measure. History refers to him as the wealthiest man that ever lived. I mean, this guy had it all. The Bible says he was paid annually in tons of gold. Tons. I'd like a couple of pounds. <laughs> a few ounces, actually, would be nice. Tons. And it says how many tons. I forget how many hundreds of tons. That was just a salary. They had wealth. This guy was and peace. As we've said here, the springtime came when it came for the kings to go off to war. They always were at war. These guys were constantly battling. But as far as we know, the entire lifetime of Solomon, they never had any war. Because he was so brilliant. I mean, can you imagine having a political leader who always knew the perfect thing to do? <laughs> Neither can I. But that's what they had. And then from this line comes the Messiah. Now, of the five wives that David had, do you know who the mother of Solomon is? Bathsheba. Wow. Wow. How is that even possible? Surely God would have used the first wife, the second, third one. Nobody likes the third wife. They never get attention. 
put forth by somebody. But no, it's Bathsheba. This woman who has no business being there. The only reason she's there is because of lust, lying, adultery, and murder. And when God said, okay, because he cried out in forgiveness, God went, okay, I'll forgive you. Wow. And it was like it never happened. She becomes the mother of Solomon. She becomes the great, 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 great grandmother of Jesus himself. It is stunning. Let's look at the genealogy of Jesus. This is the beginning of the Christmas story in Matthew. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. All these men are being named. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. She was a hoe. That's the first hoe of the three hoes. It's interesting. The only woman mentioned at this point was this woman. She's part of the genealogy of Jesus. Well, Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Aminadad. Aminadad was the father of Nashon. Nashon was the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, the prostitute that we talked about last week. She's the second. Ho. Oh. Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, referred to Ruth. She was not a hoe. Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. She's the only person who's not named. Do you know why they won't even say her name? Is they're mortified. This is so immoral. This is so wrong. Of all the people, there are some pretty messed up ones in this list. When it comes to Bathsheba, he won't even say her name. Instead, he says, it's the wife of Uriah. Uriah is the guy David killed to get her. Won't even say her name. That's how mortified they are. But yet she is part of this incredible story. As you jump down to verse 16, it says, And Jacob was the father of Joseph, who was the husband of Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus, who's called the Messiah. See, the true purpose of the Christmas story is that it is a story of redemption. No matter how good or how awful you might think you are, no matter the mistakes you might have made, some of the decisions that you've done, some of the things maybe you feel terribly and horribly ashamed of, I've got good news for you today. In God, through Christ Jesus, you can find forgiveness. And not only does he forgive you, he will redeem you and turn your life into something beautiful, even though maybe it was something that started out very ugly. Look at Rahab, this woman who was the only professional prostitute in the whole bunch, yet greatly celebrated throughout Israel. Why? Because she was redeemed. Tamar was redeemed. Bathsheba, despite Matthew's reluctance to even name her name, her name was also redeemed the mother of Solomon, this incredible king, all the way down to Joseph, who took Mary as his wife, and Jesus came into this life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We are so grateful for this December, this time of Christmas and stuff that we've been celebrating during the holidays, family and friends, but through it all, turning our focus and our attentions on you and the fact that you came into this world
You came to bring redemption, to bring a redemption story. Lord, there's so many stories here. We could be at this for months, talking of all the incredible stories in the Bible of people who are completely messed up, how you redeem them, Lord. We're thankful that no matter who we are, where we've been, that you have a redemption story for all of us. No matter who, where people are at right now, let them know that through Jesus, they can have their own personal redemption story. That God isn't done, that he will forgive, he will renew. And that is why you came into this world. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a great day.